Uh, today, Lord willing, we will finish chapter 9. Chapter 9, verses 19 through 27. And uh, just a reminder again about the women's uh, fellowship luncheon and devotional time that will be taking place immediately following the service downstairs. Uh, dads, what that means for you, um, you're definitely encouraged to hang out up here in fellowship like we normally do following church, but why don't you help your wives out by running downstairs and retrieving your children uh, beforehand just uh, to keep things moving for the ladies, and so we are uh, just trying to be mindful of uh, the potential weather that is uh, supposed to start at some point this afternoon. We want to be careful with that. And uh, with that said, also, I might sound at times like a southern auctioneer up here this morning trying to uh, cover everything uh, and still finish in a timely manner. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning at verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable reef, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray for help and clarity and understanding and for your name to be glorified. Lord, open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your word, that we would be transformed for your glory. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this morning we're going to dive right in. Uh, before we get to the sermon points, I just want to remind you where we are in the flow of the book of 1 Corinthians. You know, we're in the, the second half now where Paul is answering questions that have been asked by the Corinthian believers in an earlier letter that had been sent to him. And the section that we're in now, Paul is actually still answering a question that was raised way back in chapter 7, I believe, in relation to the issue of food or meat that had been offered to idols. What was it okay for them to eat it? And so we've seen the answer. Paul makes it clear that, uh, that, 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 that idols are no real thing. The, gospel, the gods that they represent are not real. And so to, to, to eat that meat is fine in principle, but there was a qualifier. 
due to the fact that there were uh, younger, uh, less mature Christians in, in the context of the church. Paul refers to them as the weak, those who would be weak in their faith, uh, who, who would see eating food sacrificed to an idol as a stumbling block. Uh, Paul made it clear that, that love should dictate their behavior rather than the rights that they had as followers of Christ. In other words, if, if eating meat that had been sacrificed to an idol uh, would cause someone to stumble, then it would be better not to eat that meat in their presence. Love becomes the, the guiding factor rather than our own rights as Christians. And, and we saw last week that, that Paul followed that up by pointing, himself, pointing, pointing to himself as an example. As an apostle, one who took the gospel to, 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 to the Gentiles as churches were being established and he was staying there and, and teaching and, and building them up. He had the right to be compensated by those that he was serving. But in the case of the church in Corinth, he chose to forego that right. Now, we understood contextually that that was because in Corinth, they had the traveling philosophers who would come in and, and they got paid for speaking. And so Paul, wanting to set his own ministry aside as being different than, than, than the philosophers that were coming to town, he and Barnabas chose to support themselves by working in the marketplace as tent makers. He didn't want to set up a, an obstacle that might confuse them about the God whom he proclaimed. This week, Paul takes it a, a step further to, 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 to teach the church at Corinth and also us about the importance of our gospel witness, how it's important for us to, to set aside rights even as we do that. So, so this morning we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 27 under two headings. The first one is, is going to be on the importance of understanding our audience. Paul gives us a, a peek at his motives in ministry, and those are things that really do transfer in our own efforts at reaching the lost with the gospel. And then in the second half, we're going we're gonna to look at the importance of guarding our testimony before those who do not know the Lord. And, and really what you find in verses 24 through 27 are a warning from Paul that, that are gonna, that's going to translate even into next week as we look at chapter 10. So it's a, it's a segue passage, but I've, I've chosen to include it here because I believe it is important for us to, to consider our own testimony as it relates to our ministry to the lost. So, so let's look at the importance of understanding our audience. Verses 19 through 23. Paul writes, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not, my, not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Now in these verses, the, the Apostle Paul shares his approach 
and preaching the gospel within the various groups of people that he encountered in his ministry. Now, again, we cannot read these verses without the message of chapter 8 and the first half of chapter 9 in mind. Paul understood that, that sacrifices would need to be made in order to faithfully proclaim the gospel as Christ had called him to do. Now, I want to tell you up front that these verses have been used within the contemporary church to excuse worldly and at times even sinful approaches to ministry. And it's in light of this that I want to make it clear that in these verses, Paul is not advocating an anything-goes approach to reaching the lost or that in any way he encourages sinful practices or watering down the gospel in any way. What we find in Paul's approach primarily is his willingness to set aside certain rights he had as a follower of Christ in order to not be a stumbling block in front of the non-Christians, which would have hindered their willingness to hear the truth. Now, these verses clearly capture the heart behind evangelism and missions, I believe. And we see it first in Paul's attitude of sacrifice in verse 19. Paul writes, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Now, we know that that the gospel is ultimately a message of freedom For those who were enslaved to sin. God's moral law cannot save anyone. In fact, it serves to show us how we've broken or transgressed God's law. Good deeds cannot save anyone. We cannot work our way out of our sinful condition. To borrow Paul's words from the book of Romans, all truly have sinned and fall short of God's glorious standard. But we know as as gospel-believing Christians that Jesus fulfilled God's law. He never broke it. His life was marked by perfectly righteous behavior. He always did and said what was honoring to God. Yet it was Jesus who willingly laid down his life so that all who turned to him in faith could be forgiven and reconciled to God. This is the act that breaks the power of sin in our lives. In his death, Jesus bore the punishment of God's wrath that our sin deserved. He he makes us righteous in God's sight. Jesus does all that is necessary and all that can be done in order to restore us to God. Religious works will not keep us saved. They simply become an expression of the faith that should exist within us as Christians. Yes, the the gospel truly is a message of freedom, and Paul understood this well. And he also understood that the people he was trying to reach with the gospel were not free at all, but were enslaved to sin. Now, it's in light of this reality that Paul made the commitment to sacrifice freedoms that he had as a Christian in order to reach those outside the faith. Paul writes that he is free from all, but has made himself a servant to all. Now, if you're using a different translation of the Bible this morning, you might see the word slave rather than servant in verse 19. And in this case, I think the the English word slave better captures what Paul is communicating here. 
The, the Greek word that's translated servant is used to, to describe someone who is in the process of formally becoming a slave to someone else. A more literal reading of this verse would be, although I am free from all, I have enslaved myself to all. Now, why would I make that distinction? Well, the short answer is that when we think of the word servant, we tend to think in terms of, oh, well, that person's such a, ver a servant. Look how they voluntarily give their time to, to help this person or that person. And that is a, a, a good thing. Not anti-servant here, but if we want to capture the weight of what Paul is saying about himself, he's saying, no, I am indebted to all. Paul viewed himself as one who had willingly taken on the bonds of slavery in relation to his rights as a Christian in order to reach those outside the faith. Now, this seems hard, I think, for us to, to wrap our minds around, but, but I think it's a worthwhile effort for you to undertake this morning. What does it mean to, to, to as it relates to our witness in this lost world, what does it mean for us to consider ourselves a slave to all in order to reach them with the gospel? Because I'm convinced that we need to think more like Paul when it comes to our evangelistic efforts. It, it, it really is following the example of Jesus. If you think about it, listen to, to, to Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. It's talking about Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here in the example of Jesus, we see Jesus setting aside his rights as the, as, as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, in order to humble himself and, and take on flesh for the sole purpose of glorifying God in his life, death, and resurrection and making possible to redeem mankind. That was not easy to do. It, it came at the ultimate cost. And what we see in the Apostle Paul is that his way of life was a reflection of the life of Jesus. It was also a living testimony to the value of knowing Christ as Lord. Paul's love for Jesus and those that he died to redeem was such a priority that his own rights took a back seat when it came to reaching the lost. That meant choosing to not be paid by the Corinthians in order to have a, a stronger witness among them. It meant foregoing certain foods when in the, in the presence of the Jews versus the Gentiles. It meant following certain customs when he went to, to various places, all for the goal not to make himself more holy or to gain himself any points with God, but to not set up anything that might make the gospel confusing when he proclaimed it. So Paul set aside his rights when it came to seeking the, reaching the lost. 
Let that sink in. Jesus didn't die to make our time on this earth easy or to make us more materially prosperous. He didn't die for our comfort, but in order to rescue us from what we deserve. We were undeserving. We were unlovely. We were enemies of God, yet God acted on our behalf. This should cause deep gratitude and, 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 and even a deep reverence for God within us. And it should also cultivate within us a burden for those who do not yet know him. Paul was driven to be a servant of all in order to see as many people as possible saved, reconciled to God through faith in Christ. In verses 20 through the first half of 22, Paul speaks to his approach to ministering to both Jews and Gentiles. Verse 20 says, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not, my, not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. Now as we consider this summary of Paul's approach to ministry, keep in mind that Paul is not in any way advocating that we endorse sin in our efforts to reach the lost. His approach was to be strategic and to not willingly place a stumbling block before his audience. In ministering to the Jews, he submitted himself to, to aspects of the ceremonial and dietary laws, even though he was no longer subject to those religious expectations. Now, a couple of years ago in the summertime, when our children were upstairs with us, we, 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 we learned from our study of Paul's life in the book of Acts that, that it was his customary practice to preach first in the local synagogue, if there was one, whenever he entered a new town. In that setting, he would want his audience to focus on what he taught rather than be distracted or turned off by his failure to follow protocol. And on the flip side, when he ministered to the Gentiles, he did not unnecessarily subject his audience to the Jewish customs that, that could potentially be confusing or detract from the gospel. Now, that sounds good, but it would probably be easier for me to, to give you a couple of examples from Scripture. So listen to Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. This deals with Paul and Timothy. It says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now we know that for the Jewish people, the sign of, of, of circumcision was the sign that they were a part of the, the covenant people of God. Paul wants Timothy to minister with him. Timothy was known as a faithful disciple. His mother was Jewish, his father was Greek. But Paul chose to circumcise Timothy, giving him the sign of his Jewish heritage because they would be ministering to and among the Jews. He, he didn't want the fact, that Timothy had a Greek, the, the fact that Timothy had a Greek father to be in hindrance to, 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 the, to the Jews' willingness to hear the truth. 
But if you contrast that with the book of Galatians, what Paul has to write about circumcision there, you see a totally different message. The book of Galatians was written to a church uh, which consisted of Jews and Gentiles, but but Paul is writing to make it clear that, that circumcision in no way gains any points with God. Remember, the, the, the false teaching Judaizers in, in Galatia had, had come into the church and they were leading the church astray by promoting legalism. And, and so here, Paul says, no, this, this is not a case where we, we want to, 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 to meet the expectation of the Jews. We, we want to write on behalf of the Gentiles so that there is no confusion about the gospel. Does that make sense? Now, it's funny, I, I use that as an example of, 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 of Paul being culturally sensitive to the Jews, but really it was Timothy who had to take the fall, right? I mean, but again, that, that, that shows Paul's sensitivity. He, his heart, if you read the book of Romans, is just as much to see the Jews come to faith in Christ as it is the Gentiles to whom he was sent to serve. Now, an example of Paul addressing the Gentiles and others who were weak in their understanding is, can, can be found in Acts chapter 17. This is where Paul addresses the Gentiles in Athens. And this is another example of Paul being culturally aware in his gospel efforts. Verse 22, it says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, easy for me to say, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far off, far off from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius and Areopagate and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So in this case, we see Paul addressing the Athenians using their own religious nature, nature as a starting point. There were numerous altars dedicated to false gods, and even one dedicated to an unknown god. 
And they did this in case they missed somebody. That's how religious they were. Oh, we better, we better throw one over here. We think we've hit the, the list of all the, the Greek and the, and the Roman gods. But just in case, here's another one. And Paul seizes on this as an opportunity to preach the gospel to the Gentiles and, and to open the door for further teaching to them. In a sense, Paul is using their weakness in understanding anything about the one true God as an opportunity to proclaim the truth. Now, there are a number of other examples as you look in the book of Acts, but I think the principle is pretty clear. As we seek to proclaim the gospel to the lost, we must do so with some understanding of the people that we're trying to reach. Can God save if we come out and we give a factual presentation of the gospel, which you've heard me do already on at least two occasions in the sermon this morning? Yes, he can. But does this, not, does this mean that we should not have an idea of where the people that we are trying to reach are and what they understand about God? Paul was always looking for an open door to be, to be able to point people clearly to Christ. Now, as we seek to proclaim the gospel, we must do so with compassion and understanding. Now, we live in America, in case you're lost. Here, the overwhelming majority of people have at least heard the name of Jesus and could possibly even articulate certain truths about the gospel. But brothers and sisters, this does not mean they understand it. The fact that they are still in their sins means that they don't understand it. When we seek to share the gospel, we would do well to remember that we must not assume too much about what other people know and believe about the Lord. We need to take that time to be able to engage them with wisdom, humility, but also clarity in speaking to their situation. We're going to come back to this more at the end with the application. Paul, Paul closes this section by bringing us back to his motives in ministry. He says, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I, might share, I may share with them in its blessings. Paul saw himself as the slave to all so that some would come to faith in Christ. Sacrificing certain freedoms was a small price to pay in order for others to be brought into the kingdom of Christ. And Paul knew he was called to be God's instrument used in bringing salvation to the nations. And he sacrificed freely in order to do so. Now, brothers and sisters, do we think about our witness and our ministry in this way? It's much easier to have a, a temporary view of things rather than an eternal perspective. A, a, a temporary perspective leads to a pragmatic approach that, that focuses on our convenience rather than the souls of those that we are trying to save. An eternal perspective enables us to, to see that there are no rights, no freedoms that we sacrifice here in this life that come close to the blessings and the glory that we will see when we are worshiping in heaven with those who responded to the gospel that we shared with them. 
A temporary perspective can, can also lead us to compromise and devalue what is truly important. And Paul addresses this in the form of a warning, which begins in chapter 4 that continues well into chapter 10. Let's look at the need to guard our testimony in verses 24 through 27. Paul writes, Do you not know that, that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, much like America, in ancient times, sports were a big deal. The Olympics were already in existence when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, as well as what was known as the Isthmian Games, which took place near the city of Corinth. So this idea of athletes and, and, and training and, and sport, all this would resonate. Everybody would understand exactly what Paul was talking about here. The, the athletes who competed in the games trained with intensity and, and were considered the, the ultimate physical specimens in society. And Paul uses their example of, of, of faithfulness and dedication and training and the rules of competition as a metaphor for his approach to life and ministry. Now, unlike today, there were no participation trophies back then. Everyone competed, but, but, but one was the true winner. And to become that winner meant to in, train with intensity, which involved not only hard work physically, but also careful consideration of how one would eat and get the rest that was needed in order to compete at the highest level. Now, I don't know about you when I read that. The, 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 the Rocky movies come to mind where the big fight is looming and our hero, Rocky, is, is, is found running through the streets of Philadelphia, drinking raw eggs, freezing to death in a meat locker, punching slabs of beef. What Was it the fourth movie that he ended up in Siberia or someplace working out, you know, jogging through waist-deep snow and, and lifting up boulders and all the while, his, his nemesis was, was, was taking steroids. You remember the story, right? Rocky's doing it right. The, the Russian's cheating. Sorry, I get distracted. <laughs> anyway, the, the point is simple, right? To, to, to win the prize, to, to be victorious, you have to sacrifice, train, you have to play by the rules. And Paul says, listen, the Christian life is similar, but with a much greater prize and no less discipline in order to be faithful. He understood that, that, that the effectiveness of his ministry was closely tied to how he lived. Now listen to this. We are not apostles. We are not all pastors, not even all involved in church ministry. But this is true of all our lives. Our effectiveness in our efforts to, to care for and minister to others, to, to, to glorify God in how we live, is closely tied to the way we live day in and day out, to, to what we do in private as well as what we do in public. Now, we, we saw this earlier in Paul's attitude towards the weaker brother. 
His approach in ministering to the Corinthians, what was that? He was uh, or also in his approach to, to how he ministered to the Corinthians, and, and today here in his approach to, to preaching the gospel to unbelievers, Paul knew that, that, that everything about his life mattered. He understood that it's ultimately God who changes hearts and minds and opens eyes to the truth when we preach the gospel, but God still uses means, and that means would be his people in proclaiming the truth. In fact, the, the way that we live, brothers and sisters, it, it testifies to how much we value Christ who saved us. So Paul uses this metaphor of athletics to, to emphasize the importance of discipline and devotion in the Christian life. Verse 26, he says, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. Now, we know his life was characterized by zeal and devotion. This was a, a man who suffered greatly for the cause of Christ as he sought to spread the gospel. And his life was marked by his goal to glorify God through the proclaiming of the gospel to the world because Paul understood what was at stake. Just as a runner was required to follow a strict training regiment, Paul was strict in how he prepared himself spiritually for life and ministry. He also switches his sports metaphors in, in the second half of verse 26 to boxing. He says, I do not box as, as one beating the air. And we can really understand this shift in two ways. First of all, the, the obvious way is that, is that there's a huge difference between actual boxing and shadow boxing. Shadow boxing has never been an Olympic sport for a reason. There, there have been countless fighters who climb into the ring who had quick hands and, and looked great warming up, but they couldn't land a, a quality punch or couldn't take one either. Shadow boxing is, is where you look good, but, 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 but those who train to, to fight an actual opponent know that there's more at stake. And Paul's point is that his preparation for ministry isn't, to show, isn't for show, but, but, but that he's preparing himself to do battle. Now, the second way, which is, I found very interesting to, to understand Paul's switching to, 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 to boxing here, is that we, we've learned about the, the culture in Corinth and about the philosophers who would, would come in for debate and they would speak and, and they made their living this way. It happened often in the public square. But there were philosophers who would come in and they would give their oration. They would, they would speak and, and give their message. But when they were challenged to a debate, they were unwilling to engage and to defend their point. Do you know what these philosophers were referred to as? Shadow boxers. Paul said, listen, I'm not one of those guys. I, I am prepared to, to not only preach the truth, but I want to defend the gospel against the worldly philosophies that you all are hearing. But Paul understood something else, that his primary opponent, opponent wasn't outside of himself, but was within him. Look at verse 27. Paul continues, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, as we 
live out our lives in this fallen world, the Bible really speaks to three enemies that we encounter. The world, this is a reference to the sinful, God-hating systems and religions and philosophies that exist in the world. The flesh, which is a description of the, the remnants of sin and sinful desires that exist within us as Christians. And finally, the devil, and this encompasses both Satan and also the demons that follow him. And the world and the devil are primarily external foes, although I believe that the evil one also does appeal to our sinful desires as well. And their influence can be strong, but the flesh is an enemy that is always with us. It is internal and it is powerful. It's the influence of, of, of who we were before we were saved by faith in Jesus. And in verse 27, Paul reminds us that the flesh is an opponent that we must beat in submission, figuratively speaking, every day. Paul says, I discipline my body and keep it under control. One translation says, I beat my body. The, the Greek word that's translated discipline, it means literally to, to, to punch in the eye. And the word translated keep means to enslave. And Paul is using powerful imagery. His discipline of himself, it's a picture of him beating himself into submission in order to be faithful to Christ. Now, Paul, don't get me wrong, is using imagery to illustrate the importance of self-discipline here. He's not literally punching himself in the face so that his body will somehow become submissive to himself. That's, that's not how it works. There have been people over the course of religious history who have tried to flog themselves or beat their bodies into submission, but the problem with doing that is we never deal with the problem of the heart, our affections, what we desire, what we love. So you could beat yourself, and I don't recommend this, in the head until you have a concussion and you would still deal with with temptation and sin. The warning here is that like Paul, we must spiritually discipline ourselves in order to be faithful, to overcome temptation, and to stand up under trial. Paul uses this imagery because he understands that, that, uh, that our, he focuses on this discipline because he understands that to, to fall in certain ways would disqualify him from his ministry. Now, sadly, we've all heard of or even know pastors that are no longer in ministry because of disqualifying sin. But I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, not to simply think of Paul's warning as being for those who lead in the church. It certainly applies to that. But it's also a call for all Christians to be on guard. And you'll see this more quickly or more clearly as we look at chapter 10 next week. But the true Christian is secure in Christ. But this does not mean that we cannot miss out on aspects of God's blessing or also receive God's discipline when we live in disobedience to Him. The way to avoid significant moral failure in our Christian walk is that we must prioritize our spiritual growth. Now, as I close, I want to do so with two points of application, which 
should have a significant impact on how we live. The first is from point one. The second is from point two. Point one, brothers and sisters, each of us have a number of people that we interact with on a regular basis in our lives, from our friends and family to our coworkers to, to the cashier at the gas station or the grocery store. Many of these people are not Christians, and, and you have been placed in a unique position to serve as a gospel witness to them. And I want to encourage you this morning to, to, to make the effort to get to know and to love these people. We live in the same culture, but each person is facing their own set of circumstances. Some are in difficult marriages or, or have a spouse who has left or died. Some are facing financial crises. Others are caring for family members who are critically ill. And in all these situations, Jesus truly is their greatest need. But how we talk to them about the Lord in their circumstances matters. Following Paul's example of becoming all things to all people means that we need to know people, brothers and sisters. So let me challenge you to take time today to, to, to think about those people in your life who you are interacting with regularly, whether they are close to you, whether they are, are, are acquaintances or are someone you just see from time to time, and begin to pray and ask God to open your eyes to their need for him. Don't stop there. Take the steps to get to know them. Pray for them. Pray for gospel opportunities. And when the Lord opens that door, walk through it and speak to them of the excellencies of Christ and his love. Secondly, brothers and sisters, and I say this lovingly, our spiritual lives and our spiritual growth must become a greater priority for each and every one of us. We need to prioritize knowing God better. We need to make daily worship a, a priority. We need to reflect daily on God's love, which has been revealed in the gospel. Brothers and sisters, there is no clearer reminder of God's love for his people than the fact that he sacrificed his own son to redeem us. And remembering his love is key to, to our joy as we read his word. And as we relate to one another as this church, brothers and sisters, if you're struggling today in your battle to bring your sinful desires under control, here's a hint, we all are, then we need to seek encouragement and accountability from one another. Effort that is fueled by our faith in God's ability to, 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 to complete the good work that he began in us is essential to our growth, and it is also expected by God. Let me, let me put it this way, for those of you who like sound bites. A transformed life is not simply a benefit of our salvation. It is the proof that we are actually saved. A transformed life is not simply a benefit of our salvation. It is proof that we are actually saved. Now, as you know, we offer discipleship groups here at New Hope. And in these groups, we're using the book called The Discipline of Grace by Jerry Bridges. 
If you don't have time to join a discipleship group, you can still benefit from this book. It is very helpful in explaining how God's grace is truly what enables us to take those steps of faith and obedience that, that we need if we are to be faithful followers of Christ. If you need a copy of that book or, or, or have questions about being in a discipleship group, please speak with me. We want to see as many people as possible growing and, and being transformed as they grow in God's grace. Let us pray together. Lord, I thank you for this day, and I want to, to take a moment to pray for our ladies who are going to be getting together for a time of fellowship and also a devotional from your word, Lord. I pray that, uh, Lord, even some of the things that we have learned uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Lord, would, would, would filter in, Lord, and, and the, the relationships that are growing and are developing there, Lord, would, would lead to greater obedience and growth in you. And Lord, I, I pray that for the men of this church as well. Uh, Lord, I thank you for the many loving men and women that, that make up New Hope Christian Fellowship. But Lord, we confess that, that this is an area where we can also grow as well. So Lord, I pray that, that the relationships that are growing, that are developing among us, Lord, would be relationships that, that, that lead us to a, a greater growth in our faith. Lord, that, that, that accountability and support and true fellowship would take place among us. That we would grow into the men and women that you have called us to be. For your glory and for our good, I ask in Christ's name. Amen.